I think in many ways, Memorial Day weekend signals the start of summer. Although the technical start of summer isn't until, I think, June 21st, I think for most people, Memorial Day weekend is kind of the changing point of its summer now. And that maybe you've done things to get ready for summer, even this past week. Maybe opening a pool that you had closed all winter long. Or getting out patio furniture to be able to sit out on your deck this weekend. Or cleaning up, doing all sorts of yard work to prepare your yard for the summer. Or maybe pulling out your favorite pair of jean shorts to wear this summer. Or, or maybe uh, getting a kayak out that's been packed away. Or planning a cookout. Or planning a weekend away camping. We all have things we like to do over summer that we start to do again around the time of Memorial Day. One of the things that my wife and I enjoy doing over the summer sometimes is going for a hike. It's not a regular occurrence, but at least once or twice a summer, we'll pack up, head somewhere, and explore and go for a hike. Unfortunately, I don't have the best reputation for being a guide during those hikes. Several years ago, we went to uh, Susquehannock State Park for the first time, and I had planned out our route in advance, uh, and we got there and we started hiking, and for the first three or four miles, things were going great. It was uh, a hot day, and the trail was a little bit hilly, but we were having a good time until we came to a fork in the path, or at least what I thought was a fork in the path. And I decided immediately that we're going to turn right. And that turn started to take us down this steep hill. And what I thought was a trail soon began to disappear and turned out to just be kind of brush. But, but I thought, well, okay, the, the trail just isn't clear here. We need to keep going downhill. And Bree is behind me hiking down, and she asks a couple times, hey, are you, Kyle, are you sure that we're headed in the right direction? To which, of course, I said, yes, I am sure. We're headed in the right direction. Until we got at least a quarter mile down the steep hill, maybe more, and it was obvious. There was brush, trees, no trail at all. It was obvious uh, we are not going in the right direction. We are lost, and we need to backtrack all the way up this hill to get back on the right path. The direction that we're headed in, whether on a hike or in some other way, either confirms or contradicts that we really do know where we're going. Like, if I tell you I'm not lost on a hike as I head downhill into brush, you should question whether I really know where I'm going. If you tell me that you're driving to Florida and you turn north onto I-95 and head towards New York, I should question whether you really know where you're going. The direction we're headed in either confirms or contradicts that we really do know which way we're going. In this morning's passage, 1 John 2, 7 through 11, which you can turn to if you have your Bibles, John is going to give us two directions our lives may be headed in. We can think of it as a North Pole and a South Pole. Two directions in order to show us that the direction of our lives will either confirm or contradict the claims we make about our faith. Last week, Pastor Joel preached on 1 John 2, 3 through 6. And he pointed out that there are certain tests that John gives us, or God gives us through John's letter, that help to confirm and assure us that we really do have a relationship with God. 
not create that relationship, but confirm and assure us that God has done a work and saved us and we're part of his family. And in, in many ways, this morning's message could be part two of that message. That, that if last week's message was the moral or obedience test for our relationship with God, this morning's passage gives us the social or love test for our relationship with God. Because John's going to show us the direction of our relationships with others is a reflection of our relationship with God. The direction of our relationship with others, especially, primarily other Christians, is a reflection of our relationship with God and our claim to know him. Joel said this phrase last week, which I thought was so good. He said, if perfection is the standard, direction is the test. And we're going to hone in on that this morning in relationship to how we love one another or don't love one another. Like I said, John's giving us two standards this morning, two directions our life may be headed in, love for other Christians or hate for other Christians. One of these confirms our claim to know and love God, and one of these contradicts the claim we may make to know and love God. God. And John ultimately wants us to ask, which direction marks our lives? Which is more true of us? Which is more obvious of us? Which way do we see ourselves headed? And so let's read in 1 John 2 verses 7 through 11. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light And in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes today again through your word, speaking to us by the power of your spirit to help us see what you want us to see. We believe you can change us by your word, and so I pray that you do that this morning as we look at John's message here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In verses 7 through 8, we see, and also part of verse 10, we see the confirming direction for our lives that would confirm our claim to know and love God. And this is the confirming direction. Love for one another. John starts this passage by telling us, I'm writing no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. What is that commandment? He doesn't tell us right away. What what is this commandment, John, this old new commandment? Well, it's clear from verse 10 that it's love for one another. Because John says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And it's also clear from 2 John, verse 5, John's second letter that he's going to write, where he writes these words, 
not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And so the the direction John is calling us to walk in that would confirm our claim to know and love God is love for one another, love for fellow Christians. And, And that's not because we're not also called to love those outside the family of God, but it's because our love for one another most clearly displays God's love in us, that we really do know him. Because first of all, love for one another is the defining characteristic of God's people. Love for one another is the defining characteristic of God's people. This is why John can tell us, I'm not writing you any new commandment. This commandment is as old as Leviticus 19.18, where God tells his people, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's the same commandment that Jesus says will mark his disciples and set them apart from everyone else. When in John 13, 34, he's, or 13, 35, he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And it's the same commandment, John says, has been taught to these Christians who he's writing to from the very beginning of their Christian life, from the very start of their conversion. They've been taught to love one another. Now stop and think with me about an implication of this for a moment. A call for people to believe the gospel, to repent and trust in Jesus alone, his life, death, and resurrection to save them, without also being a call to love and belong to the church, is actually incomplete. Because the gospel both reconciles us to God and to one another. And one of the clearest ways we see evidence of God's saving work in our lives is not only by our changed attitude to him, but by our changed attitude towards God's people, towards the church, towards other Christians. And, and don't miss the, the clear phrase there. It is the evidence of God's saving work. Our love for one another does not earn or keep God's love for us. That's secure in Christ. But the evidence that we really have been changed, God really has saved us, we've really come to know the one who is love, is that will more and more be marked by love for one another. And when this love is present among us, even to a small degree, it should be confirming. And when it's absent, it should be concerning. When the love's present, it should be confirming, and when it's absent, it should be concerning. As a eighth grader, I played my one and only season of organized soccer. I played right wing, for the West Fowlfield Christian School Falcons. Uh, We played 10 to 15 games that year, and I couldn't tell you how many games we won or lost, but I can tell you how many goals I scored. Do you know how many it was? Zero. None. I think I scored one goal, and it got called back for offsides. But I grew up playing hockey, so soccer offsides never made any sense to me. No goals. Now, I didn't know much about soccer, but I did know this. Right wingers are supposed to score goals. 
Not every game, not perfectly, but at least once in 10 games. And the fact that I'd scored no goals at all told me I'm probably not a soccer player, or at least not a right winger. Because something that should have been present was completely absent for me. The, the reason John can say he's not writing a new commandment is because love for one another is something that's supposed to define God's people. And when that's present, it should be confirming for us that God really has changed us. And when it's completely absent, it should be concerning because it's something that should define us. John goes on and notice what he says next. He says, at the same time, it is a new commandment. How about you, but I read that. I think, well, John, which is it? It's an old commandment, it's a new commandment, it's both. Okay, well, how is it a new commandment, John? Because love for one another is the defining signal of Christ in us. Love for one another is the defining signal that Christ is in us. John can tell us that love for one another is a new commandment, first of all, because we have a new and perfect example of what it means to love. Jesus. Jesus is the perfect embodiment of love. That if we want to know, what, what does love look like? What does love sound like? What does love talk like? What does love act like? All we need to do is look to Jesus and see. It's why Jesus could say, again in John 13, when he's in the upper room with his disciples, these words in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Our, our culture has a phrase that we throw around sometimes. It's a really simple phrase that you probably heard that just goes like this. Love is love. But there's a really big assumption behind that phrase. And here's the assumption. That love is self-evident. And that what we say is love must be love. That ultimately we get to define what love is and isn't. And Jesus so graciously and kindly and yet firmly says, I am love. If you want to see what love looks like, look at, look at me. If you want to see how love talks, what love says, how love acts, look at me. Everything you see in me, Jesus would say, is loving. And anything that we might define as love that is not seen or heard in Jesus, by virtue of that, can't be called love. That's a really important thing for us to grasp because there are going to, going to be times where those outside the church or maybe even those within the church would look at you or me and say, you're being unloving and hateful. And they may be true or they may not be true. And how we tell that is by looking to Jesus and asking, do my words and my actions line up with what he said and what he did? because I'm going to evaluate whether I'm loving based on him, not based on what anyone else may say. John can tell us, I give you a new commandment to love one another, because Jesus is the perfect image, the perfect embodiment of love. 
And any attempt to understand love apart from Jesus leaves us with a small and incomplete version of love. But, but notice John also goes on to say, and to not only that this new commandment is true in Jesus, but he says these words, which sound kind of confusing to us, I think. And it's true in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. How can John say the same love that Christ has is true in us? And, and why does he connect it to the darkness passing away and the light shining? What is John saying here? Here's what I believe John's saying. We're able to love one another because Christ is in us. That, that we have seen and experienced Christ's love by faith, and now by faith we're united together with him. And so the one who is perfect in love now lives in us and enables us to love one another. There was a movie that came out in 2002 that I remember watching as a middle schooler. A movie with the great childhood actor Lil Bow Wow. Was, yeah, that's right. He, he didn't make it very far. A movie called Like Mike. Like Mike. And, and this movie surrounds the story of a 13-year-old who's growing up in an orphanage. And he loves basketball, and he wants to play in the NBA. But there's a problem. He's short and small and scrawny, and he just gets pushed around on the basketball court. And then one day, he comes across a pair of shoes that have been worn by Michael Jordan. Not just like Jordan shoes, but shoes that were actually worn by Michael Jordan when he was playing in a basketball game. And this kid finds out that when he puts on these shoes, all of a sudden he is able to play like Mike. He can hit step back three-pointers. He can hit fadeaways. He can dunk even though he's only four feet tall. What makes him such a great basketball player is not his own ability, but the shoes he has on. Now, while being a really cheesy movie, it is, forewarning, it's also a really good example of what it means for Christians to be united with Christ by faith. What enables us to love one another is not our own ability, but the power of the one who lives in us. Our love for each other is the confirming signal that Jesus, the one who's perfect in love, lives in us. Not, that, that doesn't mean that we'll be perfect in love by any measure, but it means that we are walking in that direction even if we're going ever so slowly, barely crawling at times. That's the confirming direction. However, John also gives us another direction. If, that, if that's the North Pole, he gives us the South Pole. He says, here's the contradicting direction to our claim to know and love God be hate for one another. John first says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Hate for one another is a warning sign. If we hate a fellow Christian, if we can only speak badly of them, if we refuse to even be around them, if all we can do is talk negatively about them and we won't even pray for them, 
that should be a warning sign, John would tell us. That should be a warning sign. I don't know if you've ever been driving in your car and then all of a sudden the check engine light comes across on your dashboard. If you're like me, you probably groan ugh, and then just ignore it. Keep going. Maybe put a piece of black tape over it or a little picture and pretend it's not there. But the check engine light comes on to warn us there is something wrong that we need to get checked out in our car. And we ignore it to our own peril. When we see, when God reveals hate for other Christians in our lives, it's a warning sign that something's wrong. That we should talk to God, pray to him about it. That we might need to talk to other Christians about it. That we might need to have a conversation with someone, seek to reconcile, because something isn't right within us, John would say. And we ignore that hate to our own peril. Because if we consistently head in the direction of hate for one another, it contradicts the claim we say to know and love God. Because in essence, what we do in that moment is to say, God, I love you, but I hate someone else who you love. And Sir John would say, hate, hate is a warning sign when we see it in our lives. He, he would also tell us this, hate for one another is a contagion. John says in verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. The flip side of that would be, whoever hates his brother abides in the darkness, and in him there is cause for stumbling. And we should ask, well, stumbling for who? Who's doing the stumbling here? Is it the person who's hating someone else, or is it the other people around him? This word for stumbling is used 15 other times in the New Testament. And it often, most often, refers to an action that ends up being detrimental to other people around us, outside of ourselves. So that when we hate one another as Christians, that actually ends up causing others around us to stumble and fall. Here's how Greg Morse gives an example of this in an article he wrote. He says, I didn't see the sin until I saw the effect it began to have on my wife. Once vivacious, childlike, radiant, she began to joke less impulsively and laugh less freely. She grew quieter, less energetic, less herself. My beautiful Lily drooped before me. As any husband would, I wanted to help. What what had caused the change, I inquired one day and I soon unearthed the source I hadn't expected. My general cynicism toward people, like weeds in a lawn, did not just stay with me. My suspicion was becoming her. Hatred spreads. It affects those around us, especially those closest to us. We we likely have a collective groan at this point in our lives when we hear the word quarantine because we've experienced just how frustrating it is to have someone else's sickness either get us sick or impact our lives in some way. We've seen how illness spreads to those around us. And the same is true of hatred for one another. Our gossip, our slander, our accusations, our overall attitude towards other people rubs off on those around us. 
oh, how desperately I need to be reminded of that. Oh, how desperately I think we probably all need to be reminded of that because of how easy it is for me to speak negatively and not realize how words, cynicism, suspicion, assuming the worst, spread like a sickness at times. And as if John hasn't got us to see how big of a deal hatred is already, he closes this passage with this verse. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I don't know how else to sum up that verse besides saying this. Hate for one another is a big deal. John uses the word darkness three times in that verse to give us a picture of someone who is lost, blind, and utterly alone. That's a terrifying picture. Lost, blind, and utterly alone. And yet, that's the direction our life heads in if we consistently live in hate for one another. That we contradict our claim to know God. That we deny our need for grace and the sin in our lives. And that we slowly but surely seclude ourselves from other people and end up feeling alone in the midst of the darkness. If our life is consistently headed in the direction of hate for one another, it contradicts our claim to know the God who is love. Now, we might say, okay, those are the two directions, but how do we know which direction our life is headed in? Like, if we're supposed to walk in the direction of love for one another, not for hate for one another, how do we know without just assuming, uh, I'm a loving person, I don't hate anyone, how do we know? How do we know that? I think part of why John uses such black and white language in his letter, I don't know if you've caught that or not, but he uses a lot of black and white language. Light, darkness, nothing in between. Love, hate, nothing in between. Is because he wants us to stop and pause and ask, which direction marks my life? And to that end, under this third point this morning, I want to suggest nine signposts that I think can help us evaluate which direction am I headed in. Nine signposts I think can help us assess, okay, which direction do I see my life headed in? If, if you go on a hike, you know there will be trees along a trail that are marked with a certain splotch of paint, and those trees are there to tell us, yes, I'm headed in the right direction, I'm still on the orange trail, or no, how in the world did I get on the blue trail? I need to get back onto the right path. And so I want to give nine signposts from a couple passages in Scripture that might help us determine which way do I see my life headed. But before I give those signposts, and I'm going to give them pretty quickly, so they might be something where if there's one that sticks out, just mark it down, or maybe look back over them later this week, spend some time praying through them, or or talk about them as a care group. But before I, I give them, I want to give a couple disclaimers. One, first of all, is this is by no means a perfect or comprehensive list. You could probably add to this list or take away. 
I started with 10 signposts this week, then I went back to eight, then I landed on nine, and I probably could have went to 20 or went back to five. This is not comprehensive at all. It's not meant to be. Number two is this. With each of these, we shouldn't ask, am I perfect in this area? That's the wrong question. But does this seem to mark my life? And I would guess for all of us, there are probably going to be some where we'll say, yes, that one seems to mark my life pretty well. And there are going to be some that we say, that one's an issue for me. And that's okay, because part of giving these signposts is to help us evaluate, okay, are there ways that I've gotten off the path that God wants me to get back on the path? And then here's the final disclaimer. It's really kind of two in one. There's dangers to giving a list like this. And the first danger is this, that we would look at this list and treat it like a checklist and think, yes, 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 I do these things, I act in this way, that's why God loves me. Don't do that. That's not how this list is meant. God loves us because of what Christ has done. It's finished. But this is simply meant to help us think, okay, what direction is my life headed in? Is my life giving evidence of God's work in me. And then along with that, there's a danger to hear these signposts and immediately think, oh boy, I hope blank, fill in the blank with a name, here's this one. Fight that temptation. Fight that temptation. This is for us. This is for me. This is for you, not for anyone else. So with that all in mind, here are nine signposts. According to, and I'll give the signposts and then the passage of scripture and then maybe just a comment on each one. Number one, I'm willing to pray for others and for God to work in their lives for good. In Matthew 5.44, Jesus says this, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, while Jesus is talking about how we treat our enemies there, the same principle applies to how we treat one another. Love or prayer is in many ways the most basic and important part of loving one another. And if there's someone in our lives who we refuse to pray for, that should be a warning sign. Number two, this is the next four or five are coming from 1 Corinthians 13, four through seven. I am patient with the shortcomings and failures of others. 1 Corinthians 13 starts in verse four like this. Love is patient and kind. Love overlooks the flaws and annoyances that we see in other people rather than dwelling on them and letting that cause up anger or stir up anger in us. Number three, I seek to put others ahead of myself. The next line in 1 Corinthians says, love does not boast or envy. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Love is a commitment to put others' interests ahead of our own. Not perfectly, but a commitment to say, that's the direction I'm going to be walking in, putting others ahead of myself. Number four, I seek reconciliation and refuse to hold grudges against other. Again, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, love is not irritable or resentful. Or another way to put that is, love keeps no record of wrongs. The words, words that if they come out of our mouth should signal warning are this. I will never forgive him or her for what they've done. We should seek reconciliation. We may not always be able to find it, but seek reconciliation Seek to be at peace with all people. Seek to right wrongs. That's a mark of us heading in the pathway of love. 
Number five, I'm willing to speak the truth to others even when it's costly. Again, in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. The, the world at large would say truth must be compromised or changed for the sake of love. If you love me, you should affirm me. Christ-like countercultural love says, I will speak the truth with love, not with meanness and anger, but with love, even when it's costly, even when it costs me social standing or reputation or a position. Number six, I assume the best about others. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's so easy for us in the current context we live in to assume the worst about someone based off one statement, one political position, one post online. Love never does that. Love says, I'm going to assume the best about you and then seek to understand you from that vantage point. And maybe one of the best ways that we can demonstrate Christ-like love in our online presence is through that lens. Number seven, I'm willing to gladly sacrifice my time, energy, and money to help others. This is from later in 1 John, 1 John 3, 16 through 17. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? Love always involves sacrifice. Number eight, I'm quicker to encourage others than I am to criticize them. Ephesians 4.29 says this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do our words. Build others up. Encourage them. Speak well of them both with them and we're not around them? Or do we see ourselves consistently tearing others down, highlighting all their flaws, spreading accusations? Number nine, I seek to welcome other people and show hospitality. Hebrews 13.2 says, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Are we active in trying to welcome in the stranger among us? Or do we stay insulated in our bubbles because that's what's comfortable? Now, I I started that list with a couple disclaimers, and I'm going to close that list with two more disclaimers. There's a lot of disclaimers with it, I know. But I think it's important. Here's the first one. Maturing as a Christian means not only heading in the right direction, but recognizing more and more quickly when we get off the path. I, I hope that's encouraging for us. Like, Maturing as a Christian, having a relationship with God that's growing, does not mean we walk in the path of love perfectly. No, we're going to get off that path time and time again. But part of what God's doing in our lives is helping us to see more and more quickly, I'm off the path, I need to repent, trust Christ, and get back on the path. And then here's the second, and probably the most important disclaimer for the whole list. The only person who those nine or any other signpost we might give, described perfectly, is Jesus. Like the only person who could look at that list and say, yes, that marks me always, perfectly, completely, is Jesus. Because he's the only one who is perfect in love. 
but he's also working to take us in that direction. And the more that we know and enjoy his love, the more we'll reflect that love to others. Think with me for a moment. Many of us will probably go to the beach sometime this summer. Why is it that when you walk out onto the beach at 8 o'clock a.m. in the morning, the sand is cool to your feet? And when you walk off the beach at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the sand feels like it's burning your feet. Why is that? Same sand. Why is it cool in the morning, hot in the afternoon? You think, duh, Kyle. The sun's been shining on it all day long. Say, exactly. The sand is not hot in of itself, but it simply retains and reflects the heat of something outside of it, the sun that's been shining on it all day long. And the exact same thing is true of us when it comes to love. That we are not loving in and of ourselves, but we simply retain and reflect the love of Christ to others. Which means if we want to walk more and more in the direction of love, the way to do that is not by saying over and over again, I need to be a more loving person. Although that might be important for us to recognize, it's ultimately for us to bask in the love of Christ and how much we're loved in him. And as we see how much we're loved in him, then we reflect his love more and more to other people. An unloving Christian is simply someone who hasn't grasped or has forgotten just how much Jesus loves them. An unloving Christian is simply someone who hasn't grasped or has forgotten for a moment, however long it may be, just how much Jesus has loved him or her. Now, I want to give two takeaways this morning. They're kind of under the the same heading and then wrap up with just a short story. The, The heading is this. We need the church to give us a joyful assurance of our faith. We need the church to give us a joyful assurance of our faith. You might ask, how do I know whether I'm heading in the direction of love or hate? And I won't know that unless I'm around other Christians. Like like if a test for my faith in God is to love other Christians, I won't be able to be assured of that unless I'm around other Christians. Like it's, it's not until we get up close and personal, gathering week after week after week, maybe joining a small group or just getting together with others regularly, seeing each other's flaws and weaknesses and struggles, that then we find out Am I really loving other Christians? Am I really headed in that direction? We, we cannot say, I love God, but I don't want to be a part of the church. When John says, if you love God, you will love his people. And, and then here's the second thing with that. We need the church to help redirect us to the path of love. I think I skipped over the first one. We need the church to help us test the truth of our faith. The second one, we need the church to help redirect us to the path of love. Again, how do I know if I'm headed in the direction of love or hate for other Christians? I don't know about you, but that's a hard question to answer sometimes. And frankly, I don't trust myself to answer that question honestly all the time. Like there are times where I believe we're going to get off the path and we need someone else to point it out to us and redirect us back onto the path. 
We all need other people who are going to tell us that we're not acting in line with love and the truth of the gospel. And I would ask, do we want that? Do we want other people, other Christians, who will call us out, who will say, hey, it seems like you're not acting in love here. It seems like you've gotten off the wrong path here. We should long for that. We should long for others who love Christ and love us, who are willing to redirect us back onto the right path when they see us straying away from it. Because we need that to continue on that path. This past fall, uh, I went to watch a friend run a race. It was a 32-mile race through the trails of southern Connecticut. And part of what we had agreed upon as I went to that race with him is I was going to try to meet up with him at about mile 29 or 30 and run the final two to three miles alongside him. Because after you've run 29 miles, it's really helpful to have someone else run with you a little bit. So I, I tracked out, okay, when's he going to be at that point? And I started to hike back in from the finish line, back into the woods through the trail. And as I went, I counted the people who passed by me to see where he was at. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. There he was. You're, you're ninth. You're in the top ten. Let's go. And I jumped in behind him and was running behind him, kind of just a couple steps back, trying to encourage him along. And it was going great until about a mile away from the finish, we took a wrong turn. Turns out you don't want to be with me in the woods. Took a wrong turn, headed the wrong way, right? And we were running probably again about a quarter mile, maybe more, and all of a sudden I started to realize, hey, I don't recognize this path. This is not what I hiked back in. And I stopped him and I said, hey, I think we need to turn around. And so I ran back, tried to see, came back, got him, and finally we got back on the right path. And by that time, five or six people had passed us, and I I felt terrible. I'm like, oh, we dropped out of the top 10. I had one job to do. I should have seen right away that we got off the wrong path. And, and I felt so bad. Later in the afternoon, I told him, like, I'm sorry. I feel like I should have seen that earlier. And he said something to me to this effect. He said, if we weren't running together, who knows how long I would have kept going in that direction until I realized I wasn't on the right path. I think, what a statement of why we need the church. That if we're not running together, Who knows how far off the path we'd get. But as we run together in the direction of love, God binds us together side by side so that we might help and encourage and spur one another on to love in Christ and love for each other. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you and worship you. We have not loved you first, but you've loved us, giving up your very life to rescue us and save us. And we want to be a people who are marked more and more by your love, a people who are headed in the direction of loving one another, even if it means that we're just crawling in that direction at times. And so we ask, help us to both retain and reflect your love well. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.